Hey friends, welcome back to the Catwalk. My name is Clark Cowden. I'm your host of this podcast, and I want to thank you for joining with me again for this week's message. Today we're talking about the kingdom of God. In today's world, we think of this as a spiritual kingdom that will come in the future. But when Jesus walked on earth, when he talked about the kingdom of God, people heard that as a political reality that would exist, they hoped, in their own lifetime. So how does the spiritual reality and the political reality interact with each other? And what does it mean for us today as we seek to live out faithful lives in the midst of the politics of our time, and as we seek to be a positive influence for the kingdom of God in the midst of our challenges today. I invite you to sit back and relax and reflect on this message on the kingdom of God. The First Amendment to our nation's constitution guarantees freedom of religion. Our nation's founders had come from Europe, where every country had a state religion, one specific church that people were expected to attend, and which was supported by taxes people paid to the government. The First Amendment was designed to prevent the government from mandating a religion that everybody had to believe and allow people the choice to worship as they pleased without government intervention. As a result, we have had a higher level of religious involvement in our country than most other developed countries in the world. A majority of Americans report that religion plays a very important role in their lives. Many faiths have flourished in the United States. We are the most religiously diverse country in the world. Historically, in the 19th and early 20th centuries, our two major political parties polarized along religious preferences as well as ethnic grounds. In the North, most Protestants were Whigs or Republicans, and most Catholics were Democrats. In the South, from the 1860s to the 1980s, most whites were Democrats and most blacks were Republicans. That would change after the civil rights movement of the 1960s, when most black people shifted to the Democratic Party and most Southern whites shifted to the Republican Party. Religious belief varies considerably across the country. Only 59% of Americans living in Western states report a belief in God, while 86% of people living in the South report believing in God. Today, we find Christians in both major political parties but evangelical Christians tend to be mostly Republican, while liberal Christians, Catholics, and secular voters tend to support the Democratic Party. 
a 2019 survey conducted by the Pew Research Center found that 54% of adults believe the Republican Party to be friendly towards religion, while only 19% of respondents said the same of the Democratic Party. When we read the New Testament, we often miss the interplay between religion and politics that regularly took place in the ministry of Jesus. Scholars will tell us that the major theme of Jesus' teaching had to do with the kingdom of God. While we tend to think of that as a spiritual kingdom, the Jewish people of Jesus' day often heard it as a political message. They believed that the Messiah would restore the kingdom of David from the Old Testament, throw off the political domination of Rome, and restore Israel as a sovereign, independent nation. It's important for us to try to hear Jesus' message through the ears of his Jewish audience and then discern what it means for us today as we seek to live as faithful followers in a fallen world. The book of Matthew talks about the kingdom of God a lot. In Matthew 3, 1 to 2, it says, In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. In Matthew 4, 12 to 17, it says, When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. In Matthew 13, Jesus tells many parables where he says that the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in a field where weeds grew up. It's like a mustard seed. It's like yeast that spreads throughout a lump of dough. It's like a treasure hidden in a field. It's like merchants looking for fine pearls. And it's like fishermen who throw a net into the water to catch fish. This morning, I'd like us to think about three things. What the kingdom of God does not mean. What the kingdom of God does mean. And what the kingdom of God means for us. First of all, what the kingdom of God does not mean. When Jesus called his first disciples to follow him, they knew the challenges and costs of living in a world where they were required to say that Caesar is Lord. They were required to pledge their loyalty to the state and no one else. 
So to say that Jesus is Lord could get them arrested and thrown in prison. They were trying to live out their faith in a political world that was not friendly to any religion that challenged the government, disagreed with the government, or spoke out against the government. But Jesus rejected some of the options that people came up with. He said the kingdom of God did not mean some of the things they thought it meant. On one hand, it did not mean collusion with the political power and the wealth of Rome. This was the choice of the Sadducees. <clears throat> they accommodated their beliefs to the government. <clears throat> Jesus did tell them to give to Caesar what belonged to Caesar and to give to God what belonged to God. Jesus did tell them to be good citizens, to pay their taxes, and to honor the emperor. This is part of our ethical duty to our government. But this does not mean that we should praise, justify, and collude with corrupt and greedy political regimes in order to receive protection or privileges for our church. We should not jettison the values of the kingdom of God and the teachings of Christ to curry favor with whoever is in power. On the other hand, Jesus also rejected the option of the Essenes, which was to withdraw into the wilderness to pursue a separatist way of life. They wanted to keep themselves pure from the political corruption of their day. So they simply did not participate in society and remove themselves from the culture. Jesus also rejected the option of the zealots, who were the revolutionaries who wanted to overthrow the government with violence. They were the ones who wanted to storm the capital kidnap governors, and engage in guerrilla warfare in order to force their own people into office. None of these three options, collusion, withdrawal, or violence, is what the kingdom of God means. Secondly, what the kingdom of God does mean. When Jesus started talking about the kingdom of God, the Jewish people always believed that it would come in the future at the end of time. The shock about Jesus' message was that he was saying the kingdom of God is present in our world right now. The kingdom of God has already invaded our world, but it has not yet eliminated the kingdoms of our world. The old order of sin, oppression, poverty, violence, suffering, and death are still here. He didn't end them suddenly on one day. As the kingdom of God advances in our world, these things are on their way out. But they have not been eliminated fully yet. Jesus' parables taught the kingdom of God starts small in hidden and inexplicable ways, but then it grows irresistibly larger. 
It is infinitely precious. It is worth selling everything you have in order to obtain it. You cannot obtain it by wealth or talent or popularity or power or achievement. You can only receive it through childlike humility, servanthood, and belief in Christ. The kingdom of God is turning our world upside down, even though many people can't see that that is what is happening. The point is that the kingdom of God has already arrived. It is here right now. It is growing and expanding quietly underground. No matter how bad the world gets, the kingdom of God cannot be stopped. It is so quiet. Many people miss it. They don't see it. Even as Christians, we don't always see it. But it's there and its growth cannot be prevented. The kingdom of God is both present tense and future tense. It is both here now and it is slowly building up to an unstoppable future when it will become the dominant reality that creates a new heaven and a new earth. Because of this, we are called to practice the values and ethics of the kingdom of God as expressed in the Sermon on the Mount and the rest of Jesus' teachings. We live out the kingdom of God in the midst of Caesar's kingdom. 1 John 2.15 calls us to be in the world, but not of the world. The way Jesus did this was to eat meals with people the society despised. He turned the other cheek instead of fighting back. He offered generosity to the poor. He loved his enemies, and he welcomed strangers and the outcast. These were radical and subversive ideas to the established order, the social boundaries, and the religious codes of that day, both Jewish and Roman. Disciples of Jesus were called to a different way of life that was shaped by the kingdom of God, not by the kingdom of Herod, the kingdom of Caesar, or the kingdom of any political party. So thirdly, what does the kingdom of God mean for us today? For the first 300 years of the life of the church, Living for the kingdom of God often meant being persecuted, suffering, and thrown in jail. This is still true in some parts of our world today. But in 313 AD, when the emperor Constantine became a Christian, everything shifted. After that, the church became protected, respected, and injected into culture. The church and the state started working closely together, which solved some of the problems of suffering, but created new problems of pride, greed, and corruption by becoming part of the political system. What followed was what, what has been called Christendom, 
the merger of the church and state in Europe. The state hoped that Christianity would baptize, sanctify, and support the work of the state. And while there are many good ways the church and state can work together to make society a better place, unfortunately, what tended to happen was that the corruption of the state started flowing into the church. The church would sometimes become complicit with greed, ambition, and immorality as it tried to hold on to the power it had received from the politicians who praised them and gave them favors under the table. The problem is that if you try to gain the whole world, you can lose your soul. The historical problems we can now see is that Europe ended up getting involved in religious wars, which would later lead to a secular backlash against the church. Some people think that the best way for Christians to save the world is for Christians to take over our government and rule our country. They seem to forget that many Old Testament examples we have show the tendency of political power to go rogue and produce a downward spiral of idolatry and injustice. Some people get so excited when the president calls in a bunch of pastors and has a prayer meeting in the Oval Office, not realizing that politicians are often using Christians for their own political gain and as a way to get religious people to overlook their sins because they now have access in the ear of the president. In doing so, the church can find itself getting sucked into the self-interest and the tribal wars of our political parties, damaging our reputation in our society. On the other hand, that is not to say that Christians should stay out of the political arena. The way of complete withdrawal is not a valid biblical option. If Christians withdraw from government, our needed influence will go missing. There is a valid and honorable vocation for Christians in politics. If we can learn how to be in the world, but not of the world. In Matthew 5, 13 through 16, Jesus calls us to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. We are not to lose our saltiness, our distinctiveness. We are not to cover up our light. We are to let it shine for all to see. And the light of Christ definitely needs to shine inside of our political systems to transform them into something better than they are today. The problem is not with Christians getting involved in politics. The problem is with Christians seeking supremacy and domination in politics. The problem is in seeking coercive power. The problem is in seeking to use political power to advance the kingdom of God 
especially when people sacrifice their beliefs, values, and integrity in order to do so. When Jesus walked among us, some people wanted to make him their king. They wanted him to be their political leader. Jesus rejected that route. He said that is not how the kingdom of God is going to take root in our world. While we need Christians in leadership roles in politics and in government, the kingdom of God advances more through people who are out of power, the weak, the quiet, the poor, the humble, and the overlooked. The strength of God is seen more in the people we think are weak than the people we think are strong. What our history has taught us is that living out our faith does not depend on favorable political circumstances. The early Christians did not have favorable political circumstances with the early Roman Empire. Christians today in China, in Russia, in other countries do not have favorable political circumstances. But this has never stopped the church. This has never stopped the kingdom of God. Often the church grows strongest when its political environment is the most hostile and the most uncomfortable. So as we ponder how to live as faithful followers in a fallen world, we face many moral challenges. Often we have to choose the lesser of two evils. It requires a great deal of thought and prayer and discernment to overcome our tribal loyalties and not to sacrifice biblical ethics and values for political gain. We know there are examples in the Bible of God using evil people to accomplish his purposes, but that never exonerates their evil nor justifies our praise of them in the process. Living in and for the kingdom of God means living a life that is different from the kingdoms of this world. We are called to be involved but in a distinct and different way. We are called to live ethically and honestly, remembering the poor and the outcast. We are called to be salt in a tasteless world. We are called to be light in a dark world. We are called to be in the world, but not of the world. God bless, stay safe, See you soon.